Hi everyone, this is Tassie. And this is Bill. And this is a little short recording we're making because I'm going out for my first birding session this morning. So I just wanted to talk about gearing up. Um, <clears throat> there's Pike in the background meowing for food even though we just fed him. I asked Bill and he said to wear shoes that are nice and stable because we might be walking on some terrain that's not paved or a trail. It's also going to be wet. Mm. It's been raining a lot. So I have on my hiking boots from our trip to Iceland a couple years ago. Perfect. And then he also said to wear long pants that are nature colored, mm-hmm. basically. And so I've got on some brown corduroys. And then as people who might know me know, I wear bright clothes, so I had to pick from my not bright part of my wardrobe. So I've got a brown shirt on with a gray shirt over it. A gray shirt with a picture of a breast on it. It's true, an embellished breast made of flowers. So I also have a hat, but I don't think I'll wear it because it is very sort of gray outside. Why long pants? I don't know if we're quite there yet, but it will be tick season soon. Mm. And honestly, I don't think there is a big danger of getting ticks in Carondelet Park. Mm-hmm. But it's a good practice. And again, this might not be a case the case in Carondelet Park, but if you want to try to sort of wade through tall grass or other kind of brush... It's usually pretty good to have long pants. And bug spray is probably a good idea as it gets more into the summer. Yes, definitely. Okay, where are we going? We're going two blocks to Grandlet Park, which is a large urban park in St. Louis that has some small wooded areas as well as two lakes. Isn't it also on a big migration path somehow? I mean, not any more than the rest of St. Louis is. Okay. But we are fortunate here in St. Louis in that a lot of birds migrating from Central and South America sort of stop here. It's the Mississippi Flyway, so that some birds will use the Mississippi River as sort of a guide on their way north. And then we have these big concentrated areas of grain because St. Louis was sort of planned that way. And so there are very good places to go and watch birds. If you're in a city near a park, that's probably a good place to start. And smaller area backyards can be great, especially if you abut woods. But I will say, and maybe we can talk about this more later, but I think you'd be surprised at what you can see and attract in any backyard, however small or however urban. But yes, the bigger and the more rural your yard is probably the better, but uh, all hope is not lost if you don't have that situation. Mm-hmm. And so Bill, in addition to taking binoculars when he birds, also takes a camera and we'll talk a little bit more, but I think that he uses it both to capture beautiful images as well as to help with identification. Yes. All right, so we're gonna head out the door and... All right, this is Tassie, we're at our park and I just wanted to record the cacophonous noise of birds everywhere. I don't know if you can hear. So, so many things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I identified a jay earlier. We just heard a woodpecker drumming. We hear robins. Yeah, and starlings, lots of starlings. Okay. And then there are some sort of ducks and geese in the background too. You hear too. the domestic snow geese. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a cardinal. This is spring in the morning in St. Louis, so we're going to go into the park now. Bill has started his e-bird count. 
and we are back from our first bird outing. We were out for a little over an hour. It was cut short by some rain that popped up, but that's okay because I feel like we saw a lot. Bill, what's your species count? 22. So we saw 22 species in an hour, which is, I don't know, to me, that's amazing. Bill, what are you looking at? What do you use to track your bird watching? I use the eBird app. Okay. Does that connect to anything or does it report the information anywhere? It reports the information to Cornell Institute of Ornithology, Cornell University. By doing this, you are contributing somewhat to science and just basically getting account of where birds are at what time. And is it scary to use? Like if you're someone like me who isn't so sure about what birds are, is it intimidating? Like is someone going to question you? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily something that an absolute first-time birder needs to use, but I think you'll be up to speed to be able to use this pretty quickly. As options, it's only going to give you birds that are in the area. And if you said that you saw a bird that is native to Africa, it's going to ask you for copious amounts of evidence. To be less exaggerating, a bird that might be here, but only at a certain time of year, but every once in a while, I will get an email from a reviewer at eBird, especially if I've attached a photo, and they might say, you said that that was a sharp-shinned hawk, but it's actually a Cooper's hawk. Please go change that, and then I go change it. So it's all in the name of science and learning, and right. it's not like it's punitive if you say the wrong bird. I guess the idea is that there are checks in the system so that you won't be providing incorrect information, and there's somebody real who is checking over it which is nice. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about gear. Why hats instead of sunglasses, Bill? Sunglasses are going to affect the colors that you see, which can affect your identification of birds, as well as just making it dark overall. So for color fidelity as well as brightness. Yeah, what you'll find too is a lot of binoculars will actually increase the brightness beyond what the human eye typically sees. Mm -hmm. In other words, it might be easier to see a bird in a dark patch so anyway, all that to say that sunglasses are going to make that doubly worse, so. If you're someone like me, I get cold easily, I sweat easily, layers are important, especially because you might walk to a place and then you stand to watch the bird. So I had a jacket that I took on and off and zipped up and unzipped a couple times while we were out. So we decided how we're going to approach this is each time we're out, we'll talk about some really common birds, and then we'll talk about things that we thought were sort of exciting that we spotted today. So we're going to start with the common birds. There's one that was just all over the ground in an open field. You would see like 12, 14 of them just flopping around, and that's the American robin. Mm -hmm. And Bill, did you want to tell us a little bit about the robin and your experiences with it? Well, I like to refer to the robin by its scientific name, which is Turtus migratorius, because it's fun to say Turtus. And I know Kevin calls them trash birds. You don't have to be birding very long to kind of get tired of them, because they are all over the place. And they haven't even had their babies yet. Get ready for the robin invasion. More, more robins to come. Migratorious, that makes it sound like they migrate. Yeah, because a lot of people think, oh, I've seen a robin, that means that spring is here, which is sort of half true. In the Midwest of the United States, where we are, robins will stay year-round, although some of them will migrate short distances, or relatively short distances, in the winter. Like to Texas? Yeah, maybe even less than that. Like, maybe a bird in St. Louis would go to southern Missouri or okay. Arkansas. But at the same time, when those birds leave in the winter, they may be replaced mm -hmm. by a bird from Iowa. 
that has come a little bit south. So it's very hard to tell. And I guess another thing is that they will also return more to the woods, to wooded areas in the winter. I think a reason that we see them so much is that in the spring and the summer is because they are eating worms in people's yards. And so when the worms have gone away in the winter, the robins will sometimes go back to their more natural pre-human habitat of the woods and rely on foraging for seeds and they're, berries. They're insectivorous, but they also eat some seeds. I wouldn't call them insectivorous. I would call them equal opportunity all around. They're omnivores. Yeah, and that's why they do so well. Mm-hmm. A lot of the birds that do really well with humans are these birds that will eat all kinds of things. So do we want to describe a robin? Just like how would Sibley describe a robin? First thing I'd want to say that they are named after the European robin, which is a species that is not related. But I guess when the European settlers came here, they were familiar with the smaller European robin, but a bird that also has a sort of reddish orange breast. And so they saw these birds in America that were much larger, but they had this orange red breast. And so they started calling them robins. The robin is actually a thrush. So if there hadn't been a similarity to the European robins, we would probably call them orange-breasted thrushes. So what was the other question you had? The jizz. Let's do it. A jizz report. A large songbird that is charcoal-colored with an orange breast, some interesting sort of white details around the eyes, and a medium-sized bill. All About Birds calls it the quintessential American bird. So do we have anything else to say about robins? Are we ready to move on? Well, a male robin woke us both up oh my God. this morning as it started to sing at 3 a.m. So they are enthusiastic singers. Especially this time of year. Oh yeah. And they will sing late into the evening and extremely early in the morning. And it's a pretty-ish song. So that's the robin. The other common bird was one that I was pretty excited about because I just like how they look was the red wing. And I like them because they have these little epaulets and they look very fancy when they're flying around. This is the male, of course, the female looks different. Technically, it is the red winged blackbird and they are blackbirds with these beautiful epaulets. So they're wing markings. On their shoulders, which is why they call them epaulets. And they were hanging out in trees down by the lake. Right, they often hang around water and sort of marshy areas. This is a bird that when you go out into farmland, you're going to see tons of the ditches along sides of roads, Hmm. which in a way are little tiny marsh areas. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most abundant birds in America. In the winter, there can be these enormous flocks of thousands and hundreds of thousands of red-winged blackbirds. And they have a very distinctive call, the male does, which is the conqueree. So they were doing that and sort of flying around. The males are acting very macho macho, and doing this little strut. So what's the word for bird species that have different looks for male and female? Dimorphic. Dimorphic, whereas robins are not dimorphic. Robins are slightly dimorphic. The females are a little bit duller than the males, Mm -hmm. but it is not always easy to tell because a lot of birds can get dull just depending on (laughs) their diet or how hard of a life they've had, (laughs) um, how long it's been since they've molted. 
but a red-winged blackbird is extremely blatantly dimorphic. So the male, as we have just discussed, is this blackbird with the beautiful red and yellow epaulets. And so its entire body is black. Like, That's right. There are no head markings. There's nothing on the flank or the belly or the rump. The female, however, looks like a big sparrow. Brown and streaked, white and tan. Has a little bit of yellow around the beak and the eye. And generally, yeah, looks very different from the male. Also, it certainly appears to be smaller than the male. So moving on to birds that we were excited to spot, we are fortunate in that down the street in Carondelet Park, there's a great horned owl couple that has been producing owlets pretty regularly for three years now. Probably more than that. Okay, but we've been really noticing for about three years. The owlets have fledged, and so they've popped out of the nest, and they're in the tree that they have lived in, and they were kind of moving around a little bit with one of the parents watching from a distance, and so it was very exciting. Great horned owls are pretty large and are probably the owl that most people think of, at least in America, when they think of a typical owl. They start breeding extremely early, or at least compared to songbirds that are just getting around to breeding now. So how old were those owlets we saw? About three months. Oh, wow. So well, like... Maybe four tops. So like December. Right. So the eggs were probably laid in December mm -hmm. and the birds are almost as big as the parents. Yeah. So some distinguishing features, they're called great horn because they've got these little like feather horns on both sides of their mm -hmm. head. Which are not ears. They look like ears, but they're not. And there's actually, we learned this when we were in Winnipeg, that there are different words for owls with those little tufts and without. Ibu, I think, or oh. without and schwet or with. I might be wrong, but I'll look it up. <laughs> but yeah, which so that's in, so like that's such a defining characteristic of whether they have the little ear tufts, the little horns. In French, the ibu are the owls that have the little ear tufts, and the schwet are the ones that don't. So I'll take a shot at describing the great horned owl. It is largely brown, especially on its back and nape and crown. And it has the ear tufts. And then on its front, it's kind of striped. Stripes. Striped, black and white with some patches of orange. And then it definitely has a, a mask of orange and lighter tan color. And yellow eyes. The adult was kind of staring menacingly at us whenever we were near it or the owlets. And the owlets were past the floof stage at this point. Yeah, they've started to lose their down and look more like adult owls. But when they're born, they look like just little puffballs. Puffballs. Floofballs. Floofballs. So do you have anything to say about the great horned owls? Just that it's really, really cool to have them so close to home. Mm -hmm. It appears, I mean, knock on wood, that so far they have successfully raised two more this mm -hmm. year. And their call is the hoo-hoo. Is that right? Hoo-hoo. They are sort of a, a, a hooting owl. Yes. yes. Yeah, and so that's them. We saw several people sort of pointing at them and looking at them, but everyone was keeping a respectful distance. And then the other one, which Bill is very excited about, was a warbler. And so warblers are passerine. Warblers are passerines. But they're all migrants. Yeah, small songbirds. They're tiny. They're like two inches. Uh, not that small. So the black and white warbler we saw today is between 4.3 and 5.1 inches. Oh, I feel like it was so much smaller than that. Okay. So now that's end of the tail to end of the beak. Oh, and they do have long tails. Warblers are generally neotropical migrants, so they are wintering in South America, Central America, Mexico, and then up to parts of the southern United States. Mm -hmm. 
They are a variety of bright colors, but this one we saw today was black and white. Mm -hmm. They're just a group of birds that make birders really excited because a lot of them you only do see in the spring and in the fall when they are passing through. Like I said, they winter in Central America, but then a lot of them breed very far north in Canada. Mm -hmm. So we only get to see them when they're passing through. Now, the black and white warbler is a little bit of an exception because it doesn't necessarily have to go all the way up to Canada to breed. It will breed in Missouri. Nonetheless, this is the first black and white warbler I've seen since last fall. And they really are cool. Warbler, does that mean bird. they sing? They do sing. Some of their songs you might not describe as a warble, but I guess a lot of them you would. Okay. The cool thing about the black and white warbler is that it behaves like a nuthatch. Now, if you don't know what a nuthatch behaves like, I guess that's not a help. But basically, they forage on tree branches and tree trunks, walking very quickly, sort of underneath and around, and sort of a spiral around these tree branches. Whereas most other warblers, you will not see sort of walking on the branch as much. They will be flying and making these little darts out to catch insects. Whereas the black and white is often sort of attached to a branch. Hmm. And just always in motion. Well, all warblers are very high metabolism and very much in motion. They don't appear to be dimorphic really, or very slightly dimorphic. Yeah, they're very similar. Again, kind of like the robins, the female is paler, not as much contrast between the black and white. It almost looks painted. It has longitudinal stripes of white, black, and gray all along its head, wings, and its flanks, as well as its belly. It's just kind of black and white all over. It looks almost like a zebra bird. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good description. Hopefully this is just the first of many warblers that will be coming through or coming home soon. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't say the great horned owls are not dimorphic. They are monomorphic and, and they are also year-round residents. They don't migrate. And then we had a couple of questions in our mailbag. My friend Beth, her small son, I believe he's four or five. He was, during the coronavirus stay-in, was painting a birdhouse and was very excited to hang it. And so he wanted to know how long until you might get birds in a birdhouse. And I think that's a hard question to answer because it varies. I mean, I guess what I can say is if you have a birdhouse and you're listening to this, uh, get it up now. It may already be too late, but it might not. So, so like very early, maybe before the birds start to breed. I would say that. Get it up in March. Okay. And then the other question came from Karen, who wrote in saying that you described in the last episode your boyhood memory of listening to a mockingbird overnight. And she said that she had a memory and had thought it was a whippoorwill. And does, is that, what's the deal there? Both mockingbirds and whippoorwills will sing at night, mm -hmm. and especially a whippoorwill, who are nocturnal. And basically, if the bird was saying whippoorwill, 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 then it was a whippoorwill. Okay. A mockingbird will do a greatest hits medley mm -hmm. of other birds' songs. Of things it's learned to mimic. Yes. And that might include a whippoorwill, but it will be like in it would be very, a long list. It would be very clear that it is just one tiny little part of a much longer repertoire. And we were out in southern Missouri like last June and there was a whippoorwill and it's like monotonous. It, is, it just keeps going. And it sounds like this. Yep. 
Well, I hope that you enjoyed the description of my first birding outing. Hopefully we'll get to go again in the next couple of days. But signing off for episode three of Love Birds, this is Tassie. And Bill. Thanks. We wanted to make sure to mention that Bill has a Flickr page as well as an Instagram where he posts lots of nice bird photos if you want to follow that. His Instagram is songbillium. Bill is also songbill on Flickr. And then once again, you can leave comments on our Podomatic webpage. We're going to try to get up on Apple Podcasts soon. And we also have a Twitter page, which is at lovebirds underscore pod, no slash. We look forward to hearing from you.